Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Ina Ruprecht of the University of Munster. We will be discussing her newly published book, Persecution, Collaboration, Resistance, Music in the Reichskommissariat Norwegen, 1940-1945, published in Munster, Germany by Voxman Verlag, 2020. Ina, I am overjoyed to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ari, and the introduction to today's session. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Um. I'm from Western Germany, uh, more specific from um, North Rhine-Westphalia. And I started very young uh, playing the violin, later changing to the viola. Come from a very music-loving home, especially classical music. And we spent our summer holidays in Denmark each year. So I both got the love of Scandinavia and music from very early on. And um, hence my interest in Scandinavian history and music history. And with that um, book kind of channeling both um, interests um, in one topic. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, the project uh, Nordic Music Politics um, about the German dominance of music in um, Norway during um, National Socialism um, had two um, conferences and Professor Michael Custodes uh, kindly asked me to um, edit this second book of conference proceedings we're discussing today. And it, um, it came to, uh, important or it was important for us to um, present those um, conference papers uh, we discussed at the conference in a rather small group um, to a wider um audience and to um to introduce um others into the topic of um norwegian music during the occupation and uh, the german uh, influence on norwegian music life during the occupation and it's as it's a very um small peak with each topic into this diverse nature of um German music in uh, NS-occupied Norway. Um, we we wanted to um, 
give impulses to others um, as well as the usual reader uh, as uh, and um, the researcher who's looking for new impulses on um, his or her um, research topics. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I think the message, there is no clear message uh, as it's very diverse in its uh, content, but I think we wanted to show or portray very uh, the very diverse nature of music in Norway um, during the five years of occupation um, as they have not been highlighted um, in that depth so far and we wanted to show what was possible um, with the uh, new sources uh, available both in Norway and Germany and um, to, to show that even such a kind of small country and uh, a country not on the gen uh, on the general map of uh, in discussions about uh, n the war uh, or uh, national socialism has a lot to offer uh, when it comes to um, special cases and how um, occupiers and occupants had to work together or worked against each other and yeah what are the primary themes in your book what story or stories does your book tell um i think the primary themes are already prompted at in the title persecution collaboration and resistance um those are the three columns we addressed or the different articles addressed it's supposed to open up the field to further research and um, it's the book shows what um, music meant at the time music as means for survival uh, both in Norway or in exile uh, music as a highly political topic um, and then the censorship of music and the the, um, the use of music as torture as resistance, sometimes the same music for different purposes and musicians as resistance fighters uh, on a more like intellectual and musical level or collaborators. Um, so we tried to uh, shed light on many different um, different aspects of uh, those three columns, persecution, collaboration, and resistance to uh, give a peek into um, musical life at that time. What is your book's contribution to the history and historiography of World War II? Um, it's a different perspective on an occupied country um, that was some was considered by the Germans some kind of equal in terms of being Aryan, and 
as most research um, is done or those, uh, that research most uh, known is done on uh, greater countries as Russia, France and Austria, there are um, or there have been very limited um, research publications on music uh, history or musical events in Norway during the occupation. So um, we try to contribute another part of uh, Norwegian um, music history, um, of course, with a kind of German look of it, but um, with um, yeah, shedding light on, on the Norse as, as, as it has been uh, in many ways in the shadows and highlighting those different approaches to um, Norwegian occupation um, aside from the pure military facts um, might open a way for others and ourselves to um, take a dive into related topics or explore um, our findings further. And maybe with the idea of what we did for Norway, um, look at other countries that have not been researched as much as, for instance, uh, Russia or Soviet Union and, uh, for example, France. So, um, yeah, that's it. That's about it. What is your book's contribution to ethnomusicology? Um, it contributes an historical view to the ethnomusicological um, topics. And we do not know of uh, any um, any references in the ethnomusicological world um we don't know if if they take it into uh, consideration or if the book is purely seen as a music history um part but um it gives um impulse to norwegian norwegian research um and to look not only at the music itself but also at the um historical event events around it and um especially for the um folk music side which is not represented in our book um we tried to to find uh, someone from the music ethnological field which is folk music or takes on folk music um but um there were no norwegian um researchers willing to contribute to the project michael custodes tried early on um and so we had to leave that part out but um i think it gives an impulse to also look at that side of Norwegian music um, as we have looked mostly on the classical um, and historiogra uh, historiography of and political side of um, music in that time. What was the 
Reichsministerium für Wolkssaufkralrung und Propaganda, the RMVP. Can you elaborate on its work and evolution? The Reichsministerium für Volksaufklärung und Propaganda, or in English, the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, um, was founded in March 1933 and led by Propaganda Minister Josef Goebbels until the end. Um, Josef Goebbels tried to tie everything concerning art and culture to his ministry. Um, he uh, was, or his ministry was officially responsible for all tasks relating to the spiritual influence of the nation, uh, the promotion of state, culture and economy, and informing the domestic and foreign public about them and um, the administration of all institutions serving uh, those purposes. So it was both an institution that should influence those, um, or basically everybody uh, with um, the propaganda about uh, the Nazi regime, um, political changes and um, seeing things like um, the uh, the ultimate war or changes in, in warfare and uh, in cultural uh, life, but it should also control said cultural life um, as to what was played, who played, um, where was something played. Um, so it was kind of responsible for all kinds of information given to the uh, German people and how it was presented to them, but not only the German people, but also the um, enemies. The uh, Germans had several radio stations with um, so-called um, prop propaganda channels where they played radio for example the french the british or um the um eastern states to convince them of uh, their superiority and um um greatness and um the ministry had seven departments um Aside from administration and legal um, department, it was propaganda, radio, broadcast, press, film, theater, mu uh, music, and art as one department. So, uh, and Abwehr, um, and Abwehr was the biggest um, sub department. And with all the, those departments, Goebbels gained whole life. Um, a full life control over the cultural uh, life and media outlets. So um, the um, RMVP was a very voluminous um, institution when it was founded in 1933, but um, the size and influence of the different departments changed over time and throughout the war, but it was in many parts uh, inflated um, and it was a very large institutions with many sub departments and many um, 
offices they controlled and even had control over um, the cultural life, for example, in Norway. And um, for the troupe entertainment or for um, the musical life in, in occupied countries, there was the Sonderreferat Truppenbetreuung, for example, which was yeah, created um, at the beginning of the war. What, what was the Sonderreferat Truppenbetreuung? Can you describe its importance? Um, the Sonderreferat Truppenbetreuung was established in late 1933, so a little after the um, beginning of the war on Poland, and it uh, was part of the Department of uh, Special Cultural Tasks at the RMVP um, in 1940. So it was um, administered by Hans Hinkel, who was one of the most influential um, propaganda um, propagandists in uh, Goebbels' propaganda ministry. And it caused rivalries with the Wehrmacht because the Wehrmacht had their own um, departments for troop entertainment. Um, and through... Uh, the channels of the Wehrmacht uh, requests for troop entertainment were sent not only to the other um, institutions working on troop entertainment, but also to the Sonderreferat Truppenbetreuung. And they co-decided uh, co upon uh, the requests that came from soldiers and um, officers. And the Sonderreferat gave political evaluations concerning the entertainers who were requested or volunteers volunteered for said troop entertainment um, so that it was made sure that only um, those with acceptable political views um, were sent to um, the um, barracks and trenches. And in 1943, or from 1943 on, um, due to difficulties in maintaining the standard of um, quality in troop entertainment, I think one can discuss if there was any standard uh, in the time before or any like a constant standard. Um, so the, um, there was another department, um, the Künstler Einsatzstelle, um, that should register all the artists possibly available and then direct those artists to the Sonderreferat so that um, they had a better overview who was um, there and who, who they possibly could utilize for troop entertainment as... Um, the artists could not be subscripted um, for troop entertainment until the proclamation of total war by Goebbels in '44. So it was uh, not necessarily the creme de la creme who applied for uh, tours in support of the troops. And um, therefore, the Sonderreferat um, tried to control that only 
those artists with fitting political views, accepted repertoire and a certain demeanor would travel to the troops and forms for them. And they evaluated not only the persons who would um, travel and perform, but also uh, the programs and the appearance of the entertainers. So from texts sung or played to the length of the skirts or neckline of the um, ladies, um, they try to control everything they can beforehand. So the um, troop entertainment would go as hoped and um, envisioned. What new perspectives are gleaned in this book regarding Joseph Goebbels' propaganda? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say there are new perspectives per se, just new findings underlining how dominant and powerful Goebbels' propaganda was not only um, for Germany, um, but also in the occupied countries and how powerful Goebbels himself was not only in his own ministry, but also in staffing posts in uh, occupied territories with um, trusted employees from his own ministry. For example, in Norway, uh, this was implemented through the SS Obersturmführer Georg Wilhelm Müller, who uh, went from being one of Goebbels' personal protégés to leader of the Hauptabteilung für Volksaufklärung und Propaganda uh, in the Reichskommissariat Norwegen and held up a uh, direct link between Goebbels' propaganda ministry and the uh, Norwegian counterpart he set up or the Norwegian counterpart in the German um, administration. And... Um, so the uh, HAVP, so the Hauptabteilung für Volksaufklärung Propaganda, was modeled directly after the um, propaganda ministry in Berlin using staff from Berlin. Um, and so it allowed a great influence of uh, Goebbels on Norway and the propaganda that was um, given there. And also the idea of Goebbels chamber of culture um what he had implement uh, what he had implemented in the RMVP was established um by Norwegian minister Gulbrand Lünde um and he basically took the blueprints of the German Reichskulturkammer um to the Norwegian puppet administration and then um implemented that for the Norwegians also, so um, Goebbels basically um, sat on top of all uh, Norwegian propaganda uh, administration, both in the um, Reichskommissariat administration and the Norwegian um, puppet administration. So, who was Gunnar Kjeldas? Can you? Introduce us to him. Yeah, Gunnar Schelders um, was a teacher, primarily. Um, he was born in 1890 and died in 1963. Um, he studied for 
sometime in, in the beginning of the 1920s in Leipzig with um, prominent musicians as uh, Günther Ramin and Paul Gräner. He became friends with um, Ariel Sandwald, who's a Norwegian composer, and uh, also Olaf Kjellan. And back in Norway, um, he worked both as a teacher and a choir conductor, organ player, and gave piano and music lessons. And he also composed and um, was a member of the Norwegian Composers Association as of 1937. Um, and he is a prominent example of those teachers um, refusing to join the teachers union um, in the Nazi teachers union uh, in 1942, which was uh, implemented by uh, Wittgen Quisling's National Sammling uh, regime. And um, as a result, he had uh, eight months of imprisonment in nine different prisons and concentration camps throughout Norway, he started in uh, the south and ended up in um, North Norway. So um, there are small memorabilia he engraved during the travels or transport from camp to camp um, that test a testimony to his journey. And he started in Grini and ended up um, in Elvenes, which is very close to the Russian border. And um, when you look at the map of Norway, that's a very long stretch of transport and different camps. And um, it is, uh, the, the climate is very different in the south than it's uh, in the north near the Russian border. Uh, it's above the Arctic Circle and um, yeah, being in a uh, concentration camp or imprisoned up there is no fun. However, um, in the camp at Avenus, he composed and arranged music with um, lyrics provided by fellow inmates. And he set um, their daily experiences, impressions, hopes, and sorry under those difficult conditions um, at Avenus to music. Um, and the music is very simple, but yet very touching and impressive for both amateurs and professionals to sing. And um, Kjeldos and his uh, fellow inmates sung their um, music after long days of hard work at the camp. And after the war, um, some of those songs were um, published and sung um, in remembrance of um, the imprisonment. And they kind of vanished from public knowledge uh, after that. And uh, the project um, resurfaced those songs and um, had a small documentary about Gunnar Schelder's life and those Fange Sanger um, prison songs um, 
to commemorate um, him and his music um, that gives a very impressive um can you tell Very us impressive memory and recollection of uh, those times? Can you tell us about the different forms of German troop entertainment in occupied Norway? Yeah, it's um, there are m many different. Maybe uh, there are different levels of troop entertainment, and the troop entertainment um, I think is can be divided in two great parts. One is that entertainment that was organized by the troops itself, and the other being um, troop entertainment that was sent from Kraft durch Freude or the uh, RMVP to Norway. And I think for uh, entertainment that was organized by the troops itself, that could mean choirs, like open singing uh, events, chamber music, puppet theater, theater in general, um, comedies, um, one-man shows, and also, of course, military music bands. And um, for um, the military music bands, it's not clear to this day how many um, bands were stationed in Norway. Um, I know of one that was stationed near the Russian border um, at a front line that we that's today uh, in Finland, and they were sent back to um, Austria to play for uh, Austrian people as a thank you for um, packages um, they sent to the um, Austrian soldiers stationed up in the north, just as an example. Um, but in divisions and battalions, they often had choirs, especially if the um, the um, troops stayed together for a longer time and uh, were back at um, barracks and not directly at the front line because um, the music was supposed to also um, build up some kind of group um, group understanding and gr group strength um, to um, to distract the people from the um, things they'd seen at war and the boredom of the um, of the barracks. So um, singing was supported by. Um, various publications uh, and um, books, song books um, public, uh, published by the uh, Wehrmacht. Um, yeah, so that was a very big deal. Um, but also there it was kind of hobby and there's not much source material on it, uh, on how those choirs formed and sung and what they did, how often they met and such things. Um, however, we know it happened and that's a good thing so far. Um, but depending um, of uh, how many musical talents or musically interested people uh, or soldiers there were, um, it didn't have to be a choir. It could be some 
smaller forms or um, it could be forms of chamber music if they had the chance to have instruments and um, or other formations um, and so um, it's it, it's really unique or um, special to each to each uh, unit um, what they did and what they could do and wanted to do and what was um, wanted by the offices. Um, the um, other thing is the entertainment troops that were sent from Germany and that was um, organized by the um, Reichsministerium für Volksaufklärung und Propaganda and um, those traveling um, troops could be traveling entertainment groups so it could be and it could be orchestras or chamber music groups choirs soloists both instrumental um, and vocal or vocal um, soloists it could be actors it could be theater ensemble it could be puppet theaters it could be dancers so it's a very very diverse field of entertainment personnel that could be sent to the troops. Um, however, not every soldier saw each um, troop or form of entertainment that was sent to Norway. Um, because, for example, orchestras or chamber music groups, um, larger choirs were sent to cities and then or uh, larger entertainment troops was uh, sent to the cities with infrastructure around it and better travel conditions and smaller groups, soloists and actors, for example, could also travel to the to the front lines or in direction of the front lines to um, to entertain there. Um, for example, for Norway, we have the we have a ship that was dispatched um, by Goebbels to the northern coastal region of Norway um, that had um, entertainment troops on it, and they basically uh, traveled from uh, harbor to harbor to entertain the troops there. And um, then in Oslo, um, they. Uh, opened the first opera house in Norway, the Deutsches Theater, which was built by the Germans and run by uh, German theater companies in um, in the um, halls of Norwegian theaters, but uh, the Deutsches Theater was a completely German institution. Only the orchestra that played was um, also... Uh, utilizing Norwegian musicians, or mostly Norwegian uh, musicians. And as for group sizes, I already said bigger groups as orchestras or choirs or soloists. So we have single entertainers traveling to bigger companies, 10 to 20 or more people. And um, big cities usually had more uh, regular troop entertainment and as well they could profit from the civilian cultural life um, in the city as for example um, 
bands playing in cafes or restaurants and um, the um, frontline soldiers they received often only little entertainment when at base um, and the further one a post was stationed from the cities the smaller was the group deployed there and um, often the entertainment troops were sent to some location in the middle of nowhere but with many small posts around and then these uh, the soldiers stationed at those small posts could travel um, to the um, place of the entertainment troop to have some entertainment and um, yeah many groups or many of those traveling groups were pieced together with narrators um, or showmen holding the program together and then various artists as musicians, singers, dancers, clowns who would um, perform both their own numbers and one uh, big number together. So the um, soldiers had a sense of very diverse program in one act um, that was presented to them and mostly it was light entertainment but um, there were well some heavier entertainment with chamber music with works of Beethoven, Schubert or soloists with Bach, Beethoven um, or actors reading classical German literature such as Goethe's Faust or sportsmen uh, traveling, reading their memoirs or um, about the adventures um, they experienced and presented uh, slideshows of uh, their tours. So it was very diverse what could be presented, but the conventional soldier somewhere in the middle of nowhere did not get much of that kind of in, uh, entertainment. Can you tell us about Ludwig and Marian Hulscher, as well as Emmeran von Lerschenfeld? Why are they significant? Can you tell us about these individuals? Um, Ludwig Hölscher, um, Emmeran von Lerschenfeld and Marian Hölscher are significant so far as we have a tour diary written by Marion Hölscher, Ludwig Hölscher's wife, who traveled with him and Emmeran von Lerchenfeld on a concert tour through Norway in 1942. Um, for a bit of context, Ludwig Hölscher was a very renowned uh, German cellist. He often was accompanied by Elie Nye, a very renowned Beethoven uh, interpreter uh, and very um, known pianist uh, in Germany at the time. Uh, at that tour in Norway, he toured with Emmeran von Lerchenfeld, also a German uh, pianist, but about him we know only very little. Um, Ludwig Hölscher had a great career before the war. He continued his career during the war and he continued even afterwards um, almost up until his death. Um, and 
for the tour in 1942. Um, it's as far as we know, the only tour he uh, made to Norway, he um, was accompanied by his wife. And that's special in a way because he usually did not take his wife on concert tours. Um, and as well as the for the diary she wrote um, during the tour. And he um, can be seen as one of those stars that were supposed to play or that were promised to play for the troops on a regular basis. Um, but um, not many of his caliber were sent to Norway. However, um, he and Emran von Lerchenfeld toured the country for several days. Uh, they played both in official concert halls and smaller uh, exemplary venues, both for soldiers and um, the general public, also Norwegian public. And the programs ranged from lighter Baroque pieces to later pieces by Schubert or Karl Maria von Weber. He played Bach and Beethoven and Mozart. So he had, did not have one concert program for the whole tour. He varied uh, his programs um, from venue to venue. And all music was rather light and not as heavy or intellectual uh, as could have been considering the composers. Um, and he also premiered a dedicated piece by David Monrad Johansen um, in Oslo. The um, score of said piece has not yet been uh, recovered, but we have several um, information about it from newspapers and um, letters. So that's that's what's special about Ludwig Hölscher in short. Thank you. What new perspectives does this volume present regarding Vidkun Quisling's national sampling regime? Um, I think it goes in the same direction as um, Josef Goebbels' uh, influence on Norway, seeing that Wittgen Quisling's um, regime was an absolute puppet regime and this Norwegian state was a puppet state um, from, and he was head of it from 1942 till 1945. And his name is not only um, related to him being um, the head of uh, the National Sammling, which is the Norwegian Nazi party, or um, the head of state, um, but also stands for collaboration and tre treason, um, as he was seen as the uh, great traitor um, on the country. He presented himself um, or was presented as some kind of equivalent uh, to Adolf Hitler. He called himself uh, Führer 
and um, tried to to copy uh, Hitler, and he was only moderately successful with his um, party and his um, ideas. However, he plotted a coup d'état um, in the um, turmoil of war uh, in 1940, when he uh, proclaimed a new government uh, on the radio, which didn't last more than a few days. So uh, he tried, but did not succeed. However, uh, the Reichskommissar Josef Tierboven offered Whistling a post as prime minister, and he took office in uh, February 1942, where he portrayed himself as a modern Viking, or in the in the tradition of the Norwegian Viking Age, as the golden age of Norway, and he was ruthless um, when it when it came to. Um, resistance to his new uh, implementations of of the state. So for example, um, he sanctioned the um, the odyssey of Gunnar Scheldos through um, the camps because Gunnar Scheldos was one of um, over a thousand teachers who went on strike um, when uh, the membership in the Norwegian Nazi, Nazi Teachers Union became mandatory and um, they refused. But um, I think the bottom line is that Quisling, he kind of tried, but he never really succeeded on his own. He needed Terborfen to implement him as head of state. But um, the administration he led was modeled after a German example and, for example, his minister, Gülbrand Lünde, and his successor, uh, Rolf-Jürgen Vogelsang, um, who were responsible for the cultural affairs and propaganda in the Norwegian puppet state, uh, worked from, with, from ministries or worked with ideas blueprinted by um, Goebbels' um, Ministry for um, Propaganda. So um, it was um, it it was very condensed towards being as German and being um, following in the footsteps of uh, Hitler and Goebbels. Um, as closely as possible. Can you contextualize the composer's competition of 1942 and 1943? Yeah, so the Norwegian Society of Composers, um, the Norsk Komponistforening, had their 25-year anniversary um, in 1943. And that needed some kind of special uh, recognition. And um, so the composers competition was held. The um, Norwegian Society of Composers was formed in 1917. Sorry, the 25th anniversary is in 19, 
42, not 43. Um, the NSCA was founded in 1917 by a small group of Norwegian composers and um, they grew up to 70 members during the um, occupation, which is still a rather a small group. Most of the composers were situated around Oslo and it um, and had some kind of uh, education from Germany, Leipzig or Berlin mostly. And um, they were ex almost exclusively men, except for Pauline Hall, um, who um, gained influence in the uh, Society of Composers later on. Um, their most important task was to ensure the payment of fees for their members for their works and um, during the war the um, and the occupation of Norway the society became hesitant to publish and present new works um, on the one hand being um, asked by the resistance uh, movement for support and um, on the other hand to not come in conflict with censoring um, issues with the um, Norwegian uh, cultural department and um, they did not present new work um, they sometimes even took older scores and um, revised them they so they couldn't be played for the time and um in 1942 the um society needed aside from their 25 year anniversary they needed some point of um group activity to to strengthen the the spirit of the composers um and the um, competition was therefore a very special and important uh, event. The members were invited to hand in competitions and it, they were only, only the members invited to hand in uh, those competitions. And it was supposed to be internal and clandestine until the results were um, published. And it was kind of a small path between normality, such as um, celebrating a 25 year anniversary and maneuvering around political pressure, um, holding the whole thing internal and um, only publishing the um, results. So there were five, uh, four categories one was large-scale orchestral music the second was chamber music third church music and the fourth was smaller forms of concert music and the latest deadline was march 43 uh and um they uh, subdivided the categories later but um the um submissions had to be handed in anonymously with a motto or um, name and the name of the composer had to be handed in separately in a sealed envelope. So in theory, the um, um, the judges or the juror uh, did not know who composed what. Um, however, they were a small group. They 
all knew each other for a very long time and very well. So um, it is safe to say that um, the um, they could see by the handwriting of uh, some contestants who um, submitted what. Um, but the idea of holding the whole thing anonymous um, played a huge role in um, finding a fair winner. Um, the total prize money of the um, of the um, competition was uh, seventeen thousand uh, Norwegian crowns, um, and as orchestral works were. Uh, held in highest uh, regard, the uh, sum for orchestral works were 4,000 krona, which is very much at that time. And from the themes of the um, submissions, one can say that um, they focused on nature and landscape. Um, some had some religious um uh, reminiscences um, and also with some defiance in their um, in their motto um, and often some hint at uh, national um, national tones and uh, topics um, the symphony of Ludwig Irgens Jensen won uh, the um, the um, first category and he um, was one who kept a very low profile during the war but uh, still helped um, the resistance with hiding um, fugitives or yeah fugitives from the war um, and the symphony wasn't premiered until uh, 1945 at the Norwegian Music Week. Uh, same goes for um, the second prize winner, Klaus Egger Symphony, who um, was dedicated to Norwegian sailors in general, and especially a close friend of his who um, died through doing the war. Can you tell us about the centennial of Norway's musical icon, Edvard Grieg? Um, Edvard Grieg was stylized as a national icon already shortly after his death with the first biography uh, in 1907. And the idea was kind of maximized by David Monrad Johansson's biography in 1934. Um, and when the centennial came up in 1943, um, it was modeled to show um, the um, tight cultural bond between Germany and Norway. Uh, several, several different celebrations um, held place. There was a, a official tribute at the Reichskommissariat Norwegen. Um, then, um, there were uh, celebrations at um, Sweden and uh, Britain, and there were celebrations in Berlin. 
And for example, um, the Reichskommissariat um, celebrations were planned by uh, Georg Wilhelm Müller and Rolf Fügelsang um, to profit from Greek's international reputation and to show the tight bond between the two countries. Um, the Jubilee concerts uh, in Berlin and Oslo gained quite a lot of press um, attention. And um, for example, in Berlin, the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra um, played a concert honoring Greek with um, David Monrad Johansen and Rolf Fugelsang as guests of honor um, flown in from Norway. And also in other German cities, there was um, concerts um, commemorating Greek. But also in Norway, there were concerts um, and talks about Greek's relevance to the Norwegian national uh, idea. And um, the as most of the um, resistance had already been to move to um, the uh, Swedish uh, to Swedish exile, um, there was no real um, information on uh, how it was supposed to be kind of handled by orchestras and the public. Was it supposed to be? boycotted um, as a Nazi uh, festivity, or was it uh, supposed to be used as form of protest uh, for Greek as a European democratic uh, idol? But um, however, the uh, resistance had planned uh, their, or not planned uh, their approach, uh, the festivities in Bergen were the highlight um, of the whole um, celebrations and also seen as a form of protest by uh, musicians and audiences. The um, officials laid down wrath at Greeks' um, residence Trollhaugen um, and um, concerts were held and um, the video or, or there is a video of the festivities in uh, Oslo as an excerpt, excerpt from the Norwegische Wochenschau uh, that shows how much petos, petos uh, and ideology went into those commemorative um, situations and um, the amount of money that was put into these ev uh, events shows how much they cared for the good um, realization of um, this date um, and a documentary um, that was commissioned uh, to Walter Fürst uh, should be a 
great honor about for Greek, but it had an, um, some propaganda movie with many picturesque um, pictures and some kind of the all-time hits of Edward Grieg. Um, so not even the Norwegian newspapers were convinced uh, of the quality of the movie. Um, and it's not only Grieg's jubilee was not only um, commemorated by the um, Norwegian and German um, officials, but also by the resistance and for um, the resistance residing in uh, Sweden, um, Hans-Jakob Istvet published a, a biography um, portraying Greek as a true European Democrat and national symbol of a free Norwegian country. Um, and the there were concerts in Sweden, both in Stockholm and Uppsala, with um, prominent Norwegian music musicians in Swedish exile, such as Karl and Ernst Glaser, or Robert, Robert Levine, or Lauritz Falk. And um, in British exile, um, there was not only a concert commemorating Greeks' mu music on Norwegian National Day, May 17th, um, at the Royal Albert Hall, but also the BBC uh, remembered Greek in programs, both in Norwegian and English. Um, so even the Norwegians could technically listen to it if they still had uh, radios or access to radios um, and then um, there were several concerts uh, throughout the rest of the year who was david monrad johansen can you tell us about him uh, david monrad johansen was a norwegian composer conductor and pianist and music politician, as one might say. Um, he lived from 1888 to 1974, and he supported a very folkloristic aesthetic and um, worked against or uh, uh, advocated against the um, Jewish avant-garde uh, in music. Um, and in 1943, he um, wrote a very um, big and um, an extensive um, biography of Edward Grieg, the most extensive so far as he was the last one who could speak to uh, Nina Grieg, the composer's widow, and look at basically all the um, papers left by Greek. And um, this very comprehensive um, biography was to be translated into German in 1943 as part of the celebrations of the centennial uh, of Greek's um, birthday. And 
even though there were lengthy plans and uh, it was fully translated, it was never printed and published. Um, and one can see that in the um, German version, um, all mention of Jewish relations, such as um, to the to the head of um, Peters Verlag in, in Leipzig, um, or the Dreyfus affair was um, removed. So it was purely um, setting into the propagandist uh, view and the political ideology. Um, Monrad Johansen studied in Germany and he also supported the studies of his son, Johann Quandal, who was also a composer um, in Leipzig and Wien. He, uh, Johann Quandal studied there during the war and um, David Monrad Johansen was very entangled with uh, the Norwegian uh, music life and politics during the war. Um, he had very strong nationalist beliefs and um, was awarded the National Composer Stipend from 1921 uh, 25 to 1945. Uh, to them be um, sentenced to compulsory 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 sorry compulsory labor um, after the war for his entanglement in um, the Nazi um, politics dur uh, during the occupation and remains until today a very controversial figure in Norwegian music life. What blind spots about Norway's experience in World War II does this volume challenge? Why do these blind spots exist and persist? I think it um, challenges the general um, understanding of music life in Norway during the occupation and the um, that the idea of kind of black and white um, as it gives so many examples and um, peeks into the many layers of personal uh, interests and reactions and um, affairs, um, the um, Norwegian musicians and composers were confronted with and um, it helps us understand how difficult music life in Norway was during uh, the war and um, how much, no, cross that out. Um, and it, it kind of challenges the idea that um, there was the Norwegians um, accepted the German uh, occupation um, and that the resistance was only the part that blew up ships or roads 
so the military resistance, but there was a huge um, civil and musical resistance that uh, played a huge role in um, helping the Norwegian cultural life through the war and coming back to life after the war. And um, I think a lot of misconceptions um, exist and persist because no one has looked that deep so far um, because it's not always nice a nice story to tell. Um, when you uh, look at Norway and the Norwegians, or many Norwegians still believing that Norway was in complete resistance during the war. And then you look a bit closer and you find people who collaborated, uh, musicians who collaborated, um, and how the politics of um, Wittgen Quisling's regime adapted the German ideas and administrations. Um, so a close close or closer look is absolutely necessary to, to bring to life or to remind us about the, the full picture or the bigger picture of um, music life in an occupied country and um, Norway being unique so far as it, the country wasn't occupied to rid it from um, the um, non-Aryan people, but to, as the Nazis um, proclaimed, save it from British uh, invasion. Um, so they had a different start into the whole relationship between the countries. And um, I think looking at Norway or talking about um, music under occupation and Nazi occupation of countries, we rarely uh, tend to look up to the north. Um, so Norway has been out of focus for a very long time, um, but there's still a lot there to um, to uh, to learn about uh, the country and uh, the music history there. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, what are you working on next? Can you tell us about your current projects? What are you working on since having this volume behind you? Um, I'm still working on my dissertation about uh, German troop entertainment uh, in Norway. Um, and when that is done, um, I think of looking um, into um, like folk music, German folk music in, and national socialism. Um, and yeah, that's the plan so far as I'm no longer in academia. Um, I will see where the way leads. As we end our dialogue today, I'd like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your wisdom, erudition, and eloquence. I'm so grateful. 
thank you very much for the invitation and this very nice talk. You are superb. I really felt truly honored. Thank you. Likewise. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Ina Ruprecht of the University of Munster. We have been discussing her newly published book, Persecution, Co Collaboration, and Resistance, Music in the Reichskommissariat Norwegen, 1940-1945, published in Munster, Germany by Voxman Verlag, 2020. Thank you.